1: That's what happens with lies. People tell lies enough time they actually do believe the lie. And so they've come to believe that the governor did ask them about their father and their brother. He, but Judah probably would have said, You remember when you asked that, don't you? <laughs> and that's what we see Judah doing here in verse 19. Judah saying to the governor, You remember when you asked me, don't you? That I had a father and I a brother. The reality is the governor never asked about the brothers if they had a, one father and so forth. Now this is not a great start for Judah, <laughs> but it works for him, so he's, he's he's running with it. And and it's interesting that Joseph doesn't interrupt Judah with, I never asked you if you had a father or a brother, but he, he doesn't do that because he just wants to see where's Judah going with all this. So he lets Judah spin on, Judah, spin on. And where Judah is going with this spin is to describe to Joseph their father and their other brothers. And this is very interesting for Joseph. So Joseph is, uh, you know, he's, he's all ears and he's listening very carefully to how Judah now describes the family. Now, first Judah describes her father and he says in verse 20, verse 20, we have a father, an old man. So he describes him. Now, that description, he's starting right off the bat by showing Jacob here with really a genuine affection. Judah is showing here a genuine affection for his father, for Jacob. This is different from the past. It was different from the past. You know, the brothers, they didn't care how much they hurt their father by getting rid of the son that he loved the most. They didn't care how much they hurt their father when they tore and made that coat all bloody, the coat of many colors that their father had meticulously made for Joseph. In the past, Reuben didn't care about his father when he raped one of his father's wives. And then in the past, Simeon and Levi, they didn't care about their father when they stood him to his face and justified murdering a whole city of Shechem because one man forced their sister. But now Joseph is seeing something different. He's seeing Judah now speak for the brothers totally different. Because now Judah is speaking with a lot of care, a lot of tenderness for their father, Jacob. And this means a lot to Joseph. This is very significant, as again, he's observing how his brothers have really changed. They're repented. They've changed now in how they treat their father, because they're speaking him of him tenderly as an old man. And now Judah is going to now go on to speak about this tender love also, that he is very sensitive to between their father Jacob and how he had this tender love for the two sons of Rachel. So here Judah really is making their father Jacob come to life before the governor. And he's so skillful here because Jude, what Judah's doing here is like he's a painter. He's painting this picture very skillfully for the governor to see about their father. And the first picture that Judah paints of Jacob is of a poor old man in verse 20. And then he paints this picture of Benjamin with Jacob. And Judah calls Benjamin, you notice in verse 20, a child of his old age, a little one. So Judah's painting a picture here of Benjamin of just being a little one. I wonder what Benjamin was doing at that time. He probably was shrinking down trying to look as little as he could. And Judah now be, adopts this new word, which in the English here we see it translated as lad, but in the Hebrew it's the word na'ar, which means, uh, just, uh, that's a word you use for a child, from infancy before adolescence. And notice how Judah is continually referring to Benjamin as a lad in verse 22. He said unto my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. In verse 30, now therefore when I come to life. Serving my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's face. Verse 31, it shall come to pass when he seeth that the lad is not with us, he will die. And then in verse 32, for thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father. Verse 33, now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad a bondman. And last in the verse, verse 34, how shall I go to my father and the lad be not with us? So he's really... He's really driving this. He's emphasizing this. He's building this image here of the little boy, you know, a sweet little innocent child that's naive. He's not acquainted with the hard, cruel world like the other brothers are. Because, unlike the other brothers, this little boy has been sheltered, he's been coddled by his poor old father. I mean, he's very good at this, you know, we're almost crying when we read this, you know, we don't recognize anybody. But anyway, Judah is building in the governor's mind this picture of this poor old man with nothing left in life, but this child of his old age, which is just a little boy. This is the same picture that Nathan painted for David when he was telling David what he did to Uriah when he took Uriah's wife. And so David says, in 2 Samuel 12.3, 2 Samuel 12.3, Nathan says, in 2 Samuel 12.3, But the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. That's the same thing that Judah is doing here. He's painting this picture of his father for the governor, He's saying their father had 12 sons, but really there's only one son that he loved more than the others, and that was the one that got killed. And then the next fell to the next one, Benjamin. So it's Benjamin, and the governor is proposing to make him a slave. Very, very, very interesting. But it's very revealing to us as he's saying these things because we're starting to see something else here. We're starting to see why the brothers hated Joseph and why they hated him, because they meant nothing to Jacob compared to Joseph, and now it felt to Benjamin. So then we see why Jacob loves Benjamin so much, because Judah says about him in verse 20, he alone is is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. So he's telling the governor here, Benjamin's mother is dead, and his father loves Benjamin. Now when Judah said to the governor in this verse, that Benjamin was left alone by his mother when she died, he's really adding a third component to his picture of why Benjamin must be freed to go back to his father. The first component was because Jacob's life is tied up in Benjamin, and it's just gonna kill Jacob if Benjamin doesn't go home. So he says in verse 30, his life is bound up in the lad's life. That's the first component. The second component, is because of this poor little boy, this poor little Benjamin, who is just a coddled little boy that's never done a day's work in his life because he's been sheltered by the old, the old father. But the third component that he's now skillfully implied is the implication here, said left of his mother, of how Benjamin's devoted mother, Rachel, how much she loved Benjamin, and how much she loved him when she died. So Judah is painting a picture here of how much Rachel loved Benjamin before she died, and how cruel it would be to his deceased mother, Rachel, to take Benjamin as a slave, because Rachel loved Benjamin so much and was so devoted to Benjamin. Now that's great, except it isn't true. (laughs) Again, (laughs) it's just not true it's not true about Rachel's view to Benjamin but so all that Judah is applying here was not reality again the reality about how Rachel viewed Benjamin was seen in Rachel's last words when she died in Genesis 35:16 Genesis 35:16 tells us they journeyed from Bethel there was but a little way to come to Ephrath and Rachel travailed and she had hard labor and it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto him, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was then departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way. The truth was that Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin, and she named Benjamin Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Rachel gave Benjamin a name so that for all of Benjamin's life, whenever someone would call his name Benoni, that Benjamin would hear Rachel's last words You caused me to die. You killed me. That's great. (laughs) She really knows how to build self esteem. All right. But that was very cruel of Rachel. That was very harsh of her. So Rachel's cruel hatred from the name Benoni was just too much for Jacob to tolerate. So immediately he wiped that out and he says, no, no, we're not going to name the boy that. We're going to call him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And all this is not in the picture that Judah is painting for the governor of the loving, devoted mother of Benjamin. But what Judah doesn't know is that the governor was there when Benjamin was born (laughs) and got named Benoni at the first. But Joseph's very interested to let Judah spin on, Judah, spin on. Let's see what more comes. Now, what really caught Joseph's attention in all this is when Judah got into the subject about Benjamin's mother having two children. That was personal for him. Now, that was very interesting for him, because Judah doesn't know it, but the governor is Benjamin's brother. And so he's referring to, in verse 20, when he says, his brother is dead, his brother is dead. That's an eye-opener for Joseph. Because to hear Judah tell him that he's dead, we can imagine Joseph saying, oh really, I'm dead? No one told me I was dead. (laughs) But this also revealed to Joseph what the brothers told their father about what happened to Joseph. He was interested in that. And they told him he died. Now that explained to Joseph why he never heard of his father even trying to look for him in Egypt. Now Joseph knows that his brothers never told Jacob that they sold Joseph into Egypt, which, of course, he could assume that. But Joseph now sees how his brothers had deceived their fathers into what happened to him. So Judah knew that Joseph was sold. He knew that. And therefore, Judah had enough reason to think that Joseph was still alive. But Judah and the brothers, again, they had made their father believe that Joseph was dead, And they told that lie for so long, they forgot the truth. They just forgot the truth, and they began to believe the lie themselves. Now, all of this, telling a lie so long so you believe the truth, that's a picture of the human heart. That's a picture of the human heart. It tells lies, and then it believes the lies. After a while, it believes the lies. Like the lie of upward evolution, that all non-living matter came when nothing exploded, And that non-living matter just somehow organized itself into simple life. And that simple life just somehow became more and more complex till finally man emerged, and God had nothing to do with any of it at all. Man has told that lie so many times now, he actually now believes it. Well, there was some other important news that Joseph learned from Judas' speech. And it was when Judah further said what Jacob said to the brothers in verse 28. Verse 28, when Jacob said to the brothers, as Judah reported to the governor. And the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. Now Joseph has learned that they told their father that Joseph was torn in pieces, obviously by a wild beast. So Joseph now, it, there's a lot of emotions that are coming on Joseph. This is like a, this is being in, the, this is flooding him. This is a lot. You can just imagine here, Joseph can now imagine what happened to his prized coat that his father made for him and how he loved to wear it as a symbol of his father's coat of honor that he'd given to him. And Joseph can now just see that coat all torn and in the blood that was stained on it. He's learned that this was the lie that the brothers had told his fathers about what happened to him. And we can picture now Joseph thinking, oh, my father must be cherishing that coat as his last remembrance of me. So this makes him all the more yearn to be united with his father. Lots of emotions are going on right now. It's very hard. But apart from all these departures and excursions from the truth with Judah here, we can sort of set that aside and just look at what Judah is doing. Judah is interceding. Forget about the fact he's using lies to do it. He's interceding for Benjamin. He's told the governor that Benjamin's father is old. Benjamin's mother has died. Benjamin's mother was devoted to him. Benjamin was the only other full brother because the other one died. And, and he's being raised without a mother. And he's only by his father. He's an old man. He tries to raise him. He's just a tender little boy. See, the, all of this is what Judah's doing here. And, with, and this is intercession for Benjamin, because he wants to get Benjamin to be released. And we can see he's trying to elicit in the governor compassion and feeling for Benjamin. He's making intercession for Benjamin by trying to elicit compassion. That's a perfect picture for us of what the Lord Jesus Christ does in his intercession. It says that in Isaiah 53, 12. It says that in Isaiah 53, 12, he made intercession for the transgressors as we said, Hebrews 27, 25, he ever liveth to make intercession for them. See, this picture of Judah making intercession with the governor for Benjamin, Judah represents the Lord Jesus Christ, the governor represents God the Father, and we are Benjamin. That's the picture. And we can see the Lord Jesus making intercession for us, just like he made intercession for those who crucified him when he said in Luke 23, 34, Luke 23, 34, then said Jesus' father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, just as Judah is pleading for why Benjamin should be released, so the Lord Jesus is pleading that because they didn't know what they were doing, that the, those who crucified him should be forgiven. And what Judah is doing here with Benjamin is he's, he's acting like Benjamin's priest. He's the priest for Benjamin, and that's who the Lord Jesus is for us in Hebrews four fourteen. Hebrews four fourteen. We have a great high priest, passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So we see Judah here with all of his compassion, all of his love for Benjamin. We're seeing the essential quality of a priest. This is a priest. A priest is not a cold, sterile man who wears white clothes and says, "Don't touch me." But a priest is, as it says in Hebrews five two, is a person who can have, Hebrews 5.2, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. That's a priest. So now as Judah's describing this relationship between Benjamin and Jacob, he tells what Jacob said to the brothers in verse 27, you know that my wife bear me two sons. Oh boy, that's a sore point. Now we've brought up another sore wound here, a sore issue here among the brothers about their fathers. You know, when Judah said in verse 27, he called Rachel my wife, that was a reminder of the old problem of the household. Jacob only viewed one woman as his wife, and that was Rachel. Jacob only loved one woman in his life, that was Rachel. Jacob viewed Leah as the wife that was forced on him, imposed on him against his will by his father-in-law, and he resented Leah for being imposed on him. It reminds me of the Hasidic Orthodox Jewish wedding that I went attended to a week ago in Brooklyn at the Lubavitch Center, and it was interesting because for one week before the wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom never saw each other, never spoke to each other. Why? The purpose for that was so that both the bride and the groom should think rationally, without the, you know, I'm falling in love, but should think rationally without any emotion to make sure they really wanted to make this decision that they wanted to marry each other, love each other, stay with each other for life. That's very symbolic of how each person should take time to think rationally about whether they want to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Then on the day of the wedding, we watched as the groom saw the bride for the first time after the week. And that was when the bride was totally veiled. And that's the way the bride was during the whole marriage ceremony. She was veiled. Her face was completely covered. During the marriage ceremony, so that the bride spoke to the groom through the veil, the groom couldn't see the bride. And the purpose for that was again, so the groom would not be distracted by the bride's appearance when the vow was made, but the groom would know that I'm marrying a person, not a model. But so this face covering was very interesting. The face of the bride was covered with the veil, you know, as I said, during the marriage ceremony. But what was interesting, was to go back in time to when the bride was veiled before the marriage ceremony. Because what happened there was that the father-in-law, and of course the mother-in-law, but the father-in-law came and brought the bride out, and then it was the groom who put the veil on the bride's face. The groom took a good look at the bride, and he put the veil on her face. And the reason for that is because of what happened to Jacob when he married Rachel, but instead was tricked into marrying Leah. See, it was Leah's father. It was Leah's father, his father-in-law Laban, who put the veil on Leah's face and then told Jacob, this is Rachel, but she was under the veil. Now, as a statement of how wrong that was, and how that should never happen again, the Orthodox Jewish weddings, the father-in-law brings out the bride to the groom, and then he steps back, and the groom steps forward, and he puts the veil on the bride's face and makes, and gets a good look and say, yeah, that's the right woman. <laughs> so, because what Laban did by imposing Leah on Jacob's, on Jacob against his will, that brought untold misery to Jacob's house. And that's the reason why Judah said that Jacob called Rachel his wife. And then when Rachel began to have children with Jacob, then Rachel then imposed on Jacob her handmaid for Jacob to have children with. And so those children were imposed on Jacob. Then Leah returned and she imposed on Jacob her handmaid for Jacob to have children with and those children were imposed on Jacob. So Jacob ends up with one wife he loved, one wife he chose, and three wives he didn't love and three wives he didn't choose. And he ended up with two sons from the wife he loved and chose, and 10 sons from the wives he didn't love and he didn't choose. And Judah has just raised this issue when Judah reported to Joseph that Jacob uh, referred to Rachel as his wife. And if you thought that you come from a family that's a mess, (laughs) welcome to this family. This family, I mean, think of it. This is God's people. This is God's people. They come from this family. All this hatred, rape, murder, I mean, you name it, it's in this family. This family is a mess, and this is God's family. This is the Jewish people. This is the Jewish people that they're coming from a mess. And what does God do? He takes all the broken pieces, and he makes something wonderful, just like the song says, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful of my life. That's what I meant when I said that what we're seeing here in these chapters in Genesis is a highly personal, a highly private family affair between Joseph and his family. And that's how we need to view this reconciliation between the Jewish people and the Lord Jesus Christ as highly personal and highly private family affair where the Jewish people will become reconciled to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be when they say, All we had to offer him was brokenness and strife, and he made something beautiful of our lives. So this is the prophecy that we're studying here in the history of the reconciliation of of Joseph with his family. It's a picture of a coming reconciliation between the Lord Jesus Christ with his family, the Jewish people. And then our next study, we're going to continue in this great history of the conversion of Judah and his brothers and the great reconciliation between joseph and his family let's pray father we thank you for taking all brokenness and strife and making something beautiful out of it as we're seeing here in jesus name amen
0: another wonderful day studying the bible with our bible teacher tom Cantor here on friendship with god don't forget that today's message and previous messages at Israel org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box seven one one three three zero P.O. Box seven one one three three zero Santa California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santa California nine two zero seven one. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendship or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for a free Creation Museum admission and amazing weekly food fellowship. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor's Sunday evening messages on youtube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, and classes for children ages 5 to 12. So join the Fellowship, the Friendship with God Fellowship, every Sunday evening at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum next to Highway 67 in Santee, California, near the Santee Drive-In. For more information, call us at 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org.